Chapter 13, Part 2 of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. Netherlands, India. Chapter 13. Part 2. The Javanese are distinguished from the Malays by the black locks of matted hair escaping from under the turban, but both Javanese and Malay dress in the same fashion. The bright-colored sarong is the only garment worn, or sometimes only a short pair of inexpressibles, when the large bamboo silk plate hat looks ridiculously large by comparison with the slim brown figure beneath its mighty shade. Sometimes the bamboo hat is replaced by an oval piece of wood, with a rim fitting the head inside, and the coloring of these wooden hats is most fanciful, red and green, or bronze with yellow stripes. A melee of higher rank would add to the sarong a loose white jacket and a turban. These turbans are formed of a gray pocket handkerchief cleverly wound to the shape of the head, with two corners twisted in front to form a pair of horns. You hardly see a melee without the poles slung across the shoulder, with the two plated bamboo baskets or trays containing anything and everything suspended at the end. The butcher goes about from door to door with his meat and chopper in them, the baker with his bread, more often you see the bright scarlet of the chili on the tray, and all the marketing is done with these bamboo baskets. They stagger along with their long legs bending under the weight of the baskets, always appearing on the point of sinking, and yet managing to struggle on yet a little further, and they really go like this for miles. But the natural walk of the natives, how splendidly free and easy it is, as they swing along the street with limbs unconfined, and free play given to their bare feet. Many of the faces we saw were seamed and wrinkled with such characteristic lines and marks, and all have rather a wild, fierce look. What wonderful combinations of color, too! We saw in the street such daring blendings of sage green with orange, pink with crimson, scarlet with purple, and I see that after all our latest fashionable color, crushed strawberry, has long been a prevailing hue with the Javanese. They were the bright sarongs of the Malays, with the dark India blue workaday suit of active John Chinaman, the long robe of bright green or blue of the Armenians, for there are many of them here, with the delicate pink and green of the Chinese ladies daintily picking their way along shaded with their paper umbrellas. The Malanese and Javanese women wear the sarong equally with the men. A loose calico jacket of bright colors, cherry and pink being preferred, is worn over it, open at the throat and waist. They are small of stature and have a nut-brown skin with almond-shaped eyes, black and twinkling. Their shining black hair is worn in the smooth knot at the back that is deftly twisted in such a way that no hairpins are required to secure it. 
Many of the married women have their front teeth cut off at the roots, and this is done by a careful husband when his wife is inclined to become fast, to remind everyone that she is a married woman. Men and women alike have the disgusting habit of chewing and spitting bagel nut, which dyes their teeth and lips a bright vermilion. This explained to us the red marks on the tiled pavement, which at first we thought was blood. This habit is not confined to the lower classes. The native princes and nobles are addicted to it, when it is rendered none the less repulsive by the use of golden spittoons. The Dutch use the melees exclusively for their servants. They are very patient, waiting outside their master's doors for hours, squatting in the peculiar manner habitual to them, and which was formerly the attitude of respect they adopted when in the presence of a superior. Even now in the interior of the country, the natives come and squat before you as you pass along. I never saw a melee or Javanese sit, they always crouch or lie. They make by no means faithful servants, appearing to possess no feelings of attachment. After ten years' service, they leave you without an emotion. Their pay is from twelve to twenty guilders a month, and the custom is for their families to live in the courtyard, which usually surround the houses. The master does not concern himself about their maintenance, but then any native can live comfortably on a penny a day. Since the evacuation of the English in 1813, Java has remained stationary as regards the progress of civilization. The Netherlands government discourages education and prevents the natives from learning Dutch, a policy of reducing the natives to a non-entity as regards having a voice in the government of their country has been successfully followed. They are a happy, ignorant people, but a conquered race, governed with a hand of iron as regards the payment of taxes and levies of contributions. To such an extent is this repressing policy pursued, that, should any native official or prince learn Dutch, the government official is strictly forbidden to speak any other language but Malay. Thus it follows as a natural consequence that before receiving any civil service appointment, however low, the Dutch official must have passed the examination in Malay, which is part of the accepted curriculum of Breda College in Holland. The Malay spoken here is a different dialect to that in use in the Strait settlements. Afterwards, when we came to visit India, it was most curious and interesting to see the results of the different policies pursued by the two nations towards the conquered race. Ours, the enlightened policy, the education of the native, raising him to a state fit to govern or participate in the government of his country. That of the Dutch, a policy of repression, reducing the native to the part of the hired laborer making themselves into simple tax-gatherers. It is to Governor General Van Bosch that Java owes its great prosperity. He, it was, who developed the magnificent resources of the rich island by the introduction of the culture system. I would refer any who are interested in this subject to Mr. Money's excellent book, Java, or How to Govern a Colony. 
we suffered much in Java for the inconvenience of Dutch and Malay being the only two languages spoken. No interpreter was obtainable, and even at the booksellers, which we went to in the afternoon, there was no guidebook to be found in English, French, or German. Sauntering along the canal, we saw the primitive mode they have here of watering the streets. A man with two large watering pots slung over each shoulder runs along with the rose, inclined forward. I need not say that the watering pots are soon exhausted, though the supply is always at hand in the canal. But it struck us that the man spent most of his time in running up and down the steps to the water. It must be so pleasant to have a bath whenever you feel inclined, as the Malay women do by stripping off the loose jacket and plunging in, washing the sarong at the same time as themselves in the stream. When we got home, Ali, the old Malay servant assigned to us, with his cock-eye and pleased grin, brought us five o'clock tea, as great an institution in Java as England. The cups and saucers stand always ready in each bedroom, and the water and milk, for it is always hot milk, are boiled at the cooking stove, round which the boys are busy in the passage. Ali does not know one word of English, but quickly guesses our signs, and with the malays in making oneself understood, it is more often than not a question that there are none so deaf as those who won't hear. The Governor-General, Air von Ries, gave us an audience at the palace in the evening. The palace gives us an idea of oriental magnificence, with marble halls and galleries, and reception rooms hung with costly upholstery. The balcony is lighted with crystal chandeliers, and crowds of servants in the scarlet uniform of the government are waiting about within call. The governor-general is an exceedingly shrewd, clever man who has raised himself from the lowest position in the civil service. This salary is 14,000 pounds a year, and the position of governor of such great possessions as the Netherlands Indies is one of so much importance that it may be compared to the viceroyalty of Hindustan. Java alone sends home a surplus revenue of three million pounds yearly to the mother country, or has done so, I ought to say, until now. For the interminable war in Akin has swallowed up her surplus this year, and bids fair to do so for many more. The interior of the country is governed by Dutch residents, who give their instructions to a native prince or regent, who carries out the details. Coffee, tea, cochineal, and sugar are the chief produce and exports, though there has been great depression in the latter trade during the last year, which has given rise to a commercial crisis, when several very old established houses have been included in the general crash. Kincona calisaya, or quinine, is also largely exported. We dined with Mr. McNeil, the English consul, in his pretty house. We had not been seated at dinner above a few minutes before the white tablecloth was covered with every species of insect in the animal world. Moths with yellow wings, ants, mosquitoes, beetles great and beetles small. Tortoiseshell covers were provided to keep them out of the wine glasses, 
and many green lizards capered on the white wall opposite. Blessed above all the countries is England in this much, that, with her cold, moist atmosphere, one is not troubled with the invasion of a plague of insects. It surely is the great drawback to the charms of tropical life, enjoyed mostly in the cool of the evening, when the insects are also most actively enjoying themselves. We tasted a mangosteen for the first time this evening. It is a dark purple fruit with a thick rind the size of an apple. The fruit inside is white and has the most delicate flavor. I should call it an insidious flavor, for you hardly know in what it consists, but it is most delicious. Better than the mangosteen, I like the mango, a large pear-shaped fruit with a yellow skin, full of juice and most luscious. The taste reminded me of the fruit of the passion creeper, which, when ripe and shriveled, is excellent, only much more acrid than the mango. Another fruit, which is very common here, has brilliant red hairy bristles and contains inside a white fruit the size of a plover's egg but I am ashamed to say I never mastered its name. Pineapples, cut into lumps, and bananas, very different in their size and taste to the little shriveled bananas of export we are accustomed to at home, are served at every meal. Mr. McNeil, after dinner, took us to a representation of Il Barbier by an Italian opera company subsidized from Italy with government help. The governor came in state, and on his entrance, the Dutch national anthem was played. The doors of the theater stand open onto the broad piazza, where people promenade between the acts, and some had their servants waiting with wine and refreshments. Ladies wear mourning dress, but with the gentleman a black coat is de rigueur, though ducks may be worn underneath. The galleries were full of half-castes who here take a good position, the Javanese still continuing to wear the native costume. Beginning at 8 p.m., it was 11 before the ballet was over. Tuesday, December 23rd. We left the Freighten station on the Koenigsplein at 10 in the morning. The stations are large and whitewashed, tiled in blocks of wood, since tiling of some sort the Dutch must have. The carriages are on the American plan, save that the first class have Morocco-covered armchairs. We pass through a portion of the native quarter on the outskirts of the town. The mad huts are made of plated palm branches and thatched with the same unplated. Bamboo poles form the framework and support the projecting roof, which gives shade to the house. These huts lay hidden in a jungle formed of bamboo groves, whose straight, spiky branches look like the fingers of an outstretched hand pointing downwards. Banana trees there were, whose palm leaves, fringed and jagged, are only distinguished by this from the ordinary palm and coconut groves. These had their golden halo of fruit under the shade of their fringing, feathery arms and notches cut in their slender stems by the natives, who climb up by them to gather the fruit. The country we passed through was under cultivation for rice fields, which we saw in their different stages of development. The ground is made into terraces, 
everyone a little lower than the other, and carefully fenced round with earthwork. Each one is a bed of water, in which the rice is growing, some already coming up in tender green shoots, and others like a field of grass growing some feet high. The water is kept trickling over from each little dike into the next bed. Some we saw being plowed by dun in smoke-colored buffaloes, with their humps and straight black horns turned back, that give such a blank and idiotic look to their faces. The color of the earth was in some parts such a brilliant red that in California it would be said to denote the presence of gold. We arrived at Butensorg at noon. This place is noted for the botanical gardens, which are thought to be the finest in the world. It is the mountain resort of the Batavians, but is really only 300 feet higher than the town. One of the high two-wheeled carts drawn by one pony, whilst another is roped outside the shafts to help in pulling, took us up to the Bellevue Hotel. At the Bellevue from the veranda at the back, there is a celebrated view. It is certainly one of the most enchanting and superb views possible to imagine. I will try to describe it. The mountains are in the distance, tropical jungle creeping to their very summits, though always hidden during the rainy seasons by clouds. Jungle, jungle, veering only in depth and shade, till we begin to distinguish yet, in the far distance, some of the bananas and palms which form its densest undergrowth. Then tall palms raise up their graceful heads quite near, swaying them gently in answer to the soft summer breeze. Away over there in the corner, there are red-tiled roofs, in the midst of the coconut grove, with dots of color flitting about. In front of us, the muddy yet silvery waters of the Chichani River come flowing straight towards us, till the stream suddenly turns at right angles to itself, and hurries away in its changed course. A little bamboo house, belonging to the cultivators of the coconut grove, forms the apex of the triangle. Shouts and merry laughter come up all day from the brown figures who swim and dive and duck about in the shallow water beneath. It was very beautiful, and we sat out in the veranda all the afternoon, talking with an old Dutch naturalist who was delighted with his bottles containing a lovely chameleon and some scorpions newly captured. Meanwhile, the strange afternoon stillness reigned round the lifeless courtyard. In the evening, we had a lovely drive in the botanical, or palace gardens, as they are now called. We drove into the shade of a mighty avenue, the trees meeting at the top, and leaving us a prospective vista that faded into green dimness. The stems of the trees were not seen, but ferns and creepers grew up them, and tropical parasites circled and hung in festoons from the branches of one tree to another. We came unexpectedly at the end to the palace and the lake. The palace, with its little squat dome and turrets, produces a general effect of black and white. How fond the Dutch are of black and white, whether in their marble pavements or in the stripes on the wooden flower-pots in the garden, whether in the shutters of the houses, or in the lines on the sashes and skirtings of their houses. 
At the side of the palace we left the carriage and were told to wander through the bamboo grove. Here we found hidden away in a garden some old monuments, weather-beaten and stained, of an English officer and one or two of the governors. It seemed a strange little burying ground. A Malay boy hovered around us and offered by signs to climb a tree, as we thought, taking us for that purpose down a secluded path. At length, after much fruitless gesticulating, he took the petal of a leaf I had picked up from my hand and laid it against a tree. Then we understood. It was the famous orchids of Butensor Gardens that he was offering to show us. He led us to a retired spot where there were some leafless stumps of shrubs, and on to these, after careful examination, we discovered, engrafted and growing in bamboo baskets, about four thousand of the finest specimens of orchids. True that few were in flower, but those few we should have treasured under glass cases at home. We came back to the carriage by a byway, where there was a fountain playing over a pool of water lilies, in the midst of a green thicket. And so it is, at these Butensor gardens, one beautiful spot after another, unsuspected before, can be discovered in lengthened wanderings. A broad park, bordered by a curious row of palm trees that grow in a descending and ascending scale, forming a perfect zigzag, surrounds the front of the palace, and here there were a treasured herd of deer feeding. By the park gates are a group of marvelous banyan trees. Branches were growing down from them like the stem of another tree, or clustering like a ring of small trees around the trunk, and swelling it to enormous dimensions. In other trees, we saw the roots hanging down from the branches like a network of fibers or strings that reached to the ground. Again we saw the roots of the same trees grown outwards from the ground and forming a rocky network round the base of the trunk. Another magnificent avenue tapers away from the entrance of the park, ending in a black-and-white marble obelisk with the Netherlands arms upon it and the mystifying initials of T.T. We drove past the barracks and officers' quarters and stopped at the Roman Catholic Cemetery where the handsome monuments are all protected by zinc covers. We noticed that many of the houses, with their neatly clipped hibiscus hedge, had the stable as part of the house, the two or three stalls being open along the front. Crossing over the bridge, we looked down into a scene of great beauty, the jungle closing in the banks of the Howling River, and then we came back to the gardens once more. How utterly impossible it is to describe tropical vegetation. A string of names, even if I knew them, conveys no idea of the extraordinary beauty and curiosity of the many new-shaped leaves and plants and shrubs and trees and parasites of a jungle. I know we wished the drive could have lasted very much longer than it did, for we were amid the scenes rid of in all books of travel, groves of coconut palms and pomegranates, of sago and betel nut palms with the meliosnia and every other species of tropical beauty, with the exception of some roses, with the outside petals a dark crimson, shaded to pale pink inside, 
There are no beds of flowers in these gardens. There are plenty of brilliant shrub flowers, like the crimson hibiscus, which when crushed yields a kind of blacking, I am told. But no garden or cultivated flowers. It is the same throughout Java. No flowers, only tropical creepers and shrubs. End of section 25